Just in I think that's called the rapture. Right, let's uh, let's jump right in to Sermon on the Mount, verse five, third beatitude. Um, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you that um, you have set out a pathway for our character. And there are rewards as we follow that path. And we just ask that our hearts will be open to receive what you have to say to us. God, that we can walk uprightly, that we can walk not in the confidence of our own strength, but truly in the confidence that we are your children and that you are a good father. You're a good daddy. And uh, you have given us truth and you direct us in that path. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we, um, <clears throat> as we look at, again, I'm always interested in finding out what people think when they read the Bible. Um, first of all, I'm interested to know if they read the Bible. Secondly, I'm interested to know what they think when they read a verse. Because we find it's, it's, it's true. I had a, probably the one teacher uh, in high school that had the most effect on me with uh, not as far, I mean, my, my thing was math and science, so you didn't have to do much there, but I wasn't too keen on reading. Um, things have changed a lot since then. I can't do the new math that my grandkids do, but uh, I read a lot. But uh, our teacher gave surprise quizzes on words that she thought we did not know what they meant when we had a reading assignment. So that was her way to force us to look up words that we weren't really sure what they meant and not just pass over them and assume that we knew what they meant. And I find that a lot of people, when they read scripture, they assume they know. They just read over and they assume they know what that word means and they interpret scripture according to what they think it means sometimes as opposed to what it it really means. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, generally when, when you ask people, what does it mean to be meek, um, they usually um, compare meekness to weakness, that blessed are the meek, blessed are the weak. And it's nowhere near what meekness means. So our greatest expression um, in being godlike in our character is to be meek. So first of all, if you're going to be a meek person and you really do want to walk in meekness, what you're saying is, I want to look like Jesus. I, I want to look like, like he looks. Um, and, and we're encouraged to do it over and over. In Ephesians, Paul writes, therefore... Um, be imitators of God as children. We prayed this morning for fathers. I mean, what a profound statement that there are, are a, you know, we blame the mom, but men aren't taking responsibility. Scripture tells us that um, we as children should be imitators of God as our father. So if we truly want to be godlike, we need to imitate our father. Paul, when he writes to the Romans, um, one of the most controversial verses in, in Scripture, because it deals with predestination, 
Um, I believe we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ through salvation. So when Paul said we began the process and us to be conformed to the image of his son, through salvation, we began the process of being conformed into the image of Christ. The bottom line is we are encouraged, admonished, challenged, whatever word you want to use, to look like God, to look like the Father, to look like Jesus. And because Jesus and the Father are one, Jesus makes it clear in John 17, Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one, you and me and I and you, that they would be one in us. So to, to look like God is to look like Jesus. To look like Jesus is to look like God. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4 says, He chose us before the foundations of the world that we should be holy. So that's part of our character trait. That's part of what we are chosen to be, is to be a reflection of the image of God, to be imitators of Him, to walk in meekness and therefore be holy. So meekness, if... if if walking in meekness is godlikeness in character, then it would make sense to me that meekness is like a magnet that attracts God. When he sees kids who walk in meekness, he's attracted to them. He's drawn to them because we are reflecting his image. So he's drawn to those who reflect who he is, who live their life compelled, drawn to look like God looks, to look like Jesus looks. So blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the word. Now the, the dictionary defines meekness as a disposition to be long-suffering with a calm temper of mind and not easily provoked. Um, some people would interpret that as timidity. Some people would interpret that as a lack of boldness. You know, you just kind of cow when people confront. You just kind of step back. But true meekness is being mild in spirit, being gentle in spirit, being humble, but being bold. So humility and boldness have to go hand in hand. You can be humble and be false in your humility. You can be humble and be bold in your humility. God doesn't want false humility. God wants bold humility. People who are willing to be real when they walk out the gentleness and the, and the humbleness of their life. Uh, James says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So, James takes it a step further, and that he says the meekness of wisdom, of being wise, is to walk in meekness. He says the meekness of wisdom. Scripture's clear. God says if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask, and God will give it liberally. And so there is a, there is a portion of wisdom that you cannot be wise if you're not meek, and you cannot walk in meekness if you're not walking in wisdom. So we're encouraged to walk in the meekness of wisdom. Uh, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says this, But you, O man of God, flee these things. Now, just to, I didn't put in the whole part before that. Paul is talking to Timothy about all of the pitfalls of loving money. You know, it's, it's not bad to need money. I mean, we do need money to live. He's talking about what happens when people love money more than they love God, more than they love anything else, that the pursuit of money is because of this compulsion to love it and to have it and to never have enough. And so writing to Timothy, but he says, you, O man of God, flee these things, meaning the love of money, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, and gentleness is the same Greek word as meekness. So Paul even admonishes his mentoree, Timothy, Look at, don't pursue the riches of this earth. Pursue the riches of character, part of which is being meek. So I, I, I see meekness as, and we have this mirror here as this great illustration. Say hi to everybody on the other side. Um, but we have this glory mirror that we are encouraged to look into that is, is part of the process of being transformed into being a meek 
person. And so the, the revelation of the meekness of Jesus should produce a longing in our heart to want to look like him. And so Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says this, but we all with unveiled faces, so in other words, we're not hidden, our faces there, it's exposed. We all with unveiled faces, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So I think A.W. Tozer in The Knowledge of the Holy, and if you've never read that book, I encourage you to read it. Um, I call it the book that makes you feel like warm sweat. So about as low as you can get. It just really humbles you. But here's what Tozer says, and I think he best explains this verse in, in the chapter on why we must think rightly about God. He says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing to us. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. <clears throat> Always, <clears throat> the most revealing thing about the church is our idea of God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. So Tozer is saying to gaze into this mirror, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, is part of the process of us defining how we see God. Now, Jill, today, having us pray for fatherhood, we have, we have been taught psychologically that the way we perceive our heavenly father is based upon the relationship we've had with our earthly father. If our earthly father is mean and overbearing or absent, um, we have a tendency to look at God that way. I'm, I'm finishing a book right now on Martin Luther written by Eric Metaxas, and, and part of the... Um, in the 14th century, part of the issue with the Catholic Church, why they were so compelled to pray to Mary, was because they saw God as this forbearing, overbearing, judgmental, graceless being, that because of their sin, they would never have the, the right or would never feel worthy enough to even begin to talk to him. And because they saw Jesus as God incarnate, they felt like it was the same problem with Jesus. And they said, if we talk to Mary, she's one of us. She'll understand us more than God does. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that see God through that lens. They think that God is some sort of forbearing, overbearing, absent, careless, what, whatever attribute. But Paul tells the church at Corinth and Tozer rightly defines it, that our image of God can only be fully appreciated when we're gazing into God. To look into him, and Paul says, as we look into him, as we gaze into him, as gazing into a mirror, what we behold of him is what we become. And that's why Tozer says, if a man could rightly define for us how he sees God, we could pretty much predict what his spiritual life would turn out to be. So those who see God as some sort of over, overbearing, unforgiving, mean man, their spiritual life is going to be always less than. They're always going to feel like God's mad at them, that God's disappointed in them, that God doesn't care about them. They, they, they could never fully wrap their mind around the emotions and feelings and affections of a father who loves them deeply regardless because of the price that his son paid. So the beholding and becoming principle with God is this. Whatever we behold God to be is what we will become. So let me say that again. However you perceive God to be, however you perceive God to be in his relationship with you, is what you will become in your relationship with him. It, 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 it fully affects how you respond to him and how you see him. So if in your sin, 
and we're all in sin. If in our sin, we feel like God is going to shame us, we're going to come to him with the same sin, and he's eventually going to disdain us, eventually not have any more patience for us, we're going to be the same way when it comes to sin in the lives of others. We are not going to have the compassion and love that God has for a sinner if we don't think God has compassion and love for us in the midst of our sin. So it's this beholding and becoming as we stare into this mirror as Paul describes it. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into his image. So whatever we experience in God shapes how we respond to God and shapes how we treat others. Our concept of God becomes the path of transformation upon which we move. And so we can be transformed rightly. We can be transformed incorrectly. It all depends on how we see what we gaze into. And so it is by beholding God that we're changed. Um, and so the, the, the God of pleasure designed us to delight in what we behold. So first of all, <clears throat> we, we need to see that God is a God of pleasure. If, if he delights in us, if God delights in me, either he's got a great sense of humor or he has a lot of pleasure. So, so God is a God who has emotion, who delights in his creation, who delights in those who have embraced the work of his son and want to call him Abba, want to call him Daddy, and he's willing to walk with us through the process of transformation. This is what Jesus says um, when he's talking about our eyes. Because if we're looking and beholding, he's telling us what we see. Here's, here's what he says. The lamp of the body is the eye. And we're going to get into this because this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be in, in a month or so. So the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So again, Jesus is saying, however we perceive what we look into, if we see it as light, we become light. If we see it as dark, we become dark. And he says, if the perception of light in our life is actually darkness, then that darkness is really dark. It really has a profound effect upon us. And, and just contextually, when we get to this, when Jesus is talking about becoming what our eye beholds, it's in the context of talking about, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery, but I tell you, whatever you think, if you thought about it, if you lusted about it, you've already done it. And then he goes on and talks about our eyes and our hands. And it's in the context of, of sexual lust. Um, and we'll get into that more. But in Psalm 119, um, which I think is one of the greatest psalms because it just talks over and over and over and over about our heart. He says, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. I'm not going to give you the worthless test. I'm not going to ask you to make a list of things that we gaze upon that are worthless. Because I confess, I would be at the front of the line. Because I just like action movies. No, and, and, and the more complex, the better. If I can outsmart them and figure out the end before everybody else does, I feel like I have arrived. Um, that might fall in the context of looking at worthless things. Um, and there are times I have conversations with God because I have, I have certain compacts with God, certain covenants I've made that I, have to, that I have to do every day. And I don't have to do them because God's sitting there pointing his finger. I have to do them because I made a covenant with him. You know, one, one is my, my, my journal, my prayer time. Another is... I read at least one chapter a day in a book that's not the Bible, in, in addition to the Bible. And there are days when I say, God, I have read so much today. I have spent time in prayer today. My brain just wants to watch somebody get shot. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm being honest here. I've probably watched all the Bourne movies 30 times. I mean, it's just part of who I am. I can't, 
and as much as I don't like Tom Cruise, I've watched all Mission Impossible movies a lot of times too. It's just, I, I'm, so that's, that's the worthless thing I wrestle with. But, but here's the grand design of the eye. The eye is the gateway to fascination. The eye is the gateway to beholding splendor and glory. The affections of our heart will follow the locked gaze of our eye. So, in other words, if I spent my entire life gazing only upon action movies, watching people get killed, there would come a time, seriously, where I would feel that the answer to a problem is to kill somebody. If, if my... And I said this this week, and, and not in a confession of sin, but in a confession of a human understanding, that when... Mario Cuomo and, and those surrounding him were clapping and cheering. And the bill that says, if your baby's born tomorrow, you can murder him or her today. And they were cheering that. At that moment, I understood some of the guys who were in jail for blowing up abortion clinics. I understood people who were in jail for Britain. And the human side of me just wanted to say, man, you don't deserve to take another breath. You know, and, and if I spent my life dwelling on that, if action movies and, and revenge and man's vengeance has, becomes what I behold, it is what I would become, and I would be prone to become one of those people. So instead, I had to turn around and I had to actually pray for Mario Cuomo. Um, I had to get in front. I, I went to a, a prayer meeting at a different place Friday night, sorry. But I went to a prayer meeting and I had to tell them, you know what? You need to agree with me right now for Mario Cuomo and for those in New York who have signed this bill because God loves them and God wants to redeem them. So I have to pray for them in the context in which God loves them and not in the context in which E.M. Neeson would handle them. <laughs> so that's, that's the reality of what this is all about. That's the reality about the meek inheriting the earth. You know, Song of Solomon 4.1 says, Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. And, and the interesting thing about the reason dove's eyes are used all the way through the Song of Solomon is because doves are the only birds that mate for life. So I don't know how they decide who their mate's going to be. That's up to them. But once they've mated, they have eyes for one bird and one bird only. And so when the Song of Solomon says, you have dove's eyes, the, the, the context is, once my eyes have become set on you and you have become the focus of my affection, from now on, all my eyes, all my affection is for you and you alone. That's why it says, you have dove's eyes behind your veil. So what you give your eyes is what you become. So God says, don't give them to anything less than the nobility of my son. Again, in Matthew 5, this is talking again about sin. Um, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So what is meant when, it, when we talk about glory? Because I have to tell you, glory is a big word in the church today. Everybody wants the glory. Everybody wants God's glory. Um, so when we talk about glory, um, just let me tell you some words in Scripture that are synonymous. In other words, the, the same Hebrew word is used and is translated differently in English, but it always comes back to that root word. Other words are brightness, are splendor, radiance, greatness, beauty. Those words are all used in English to define the Greek word for glory. And so it points to God's self-revelation. That's which he shows about himself. And Exodus 33 and 34 sets the background for us understanding the glory of the Lord. So today, you will leave this room knowing what you mean when you're asking for the glory of the Lord to show up. Because here it comes. 
the, the glory of the Lord, we, we get the first glimpse of delving into it in Exodus 33. And if you have a Bible, you might want to open, because if I put it in the notes, we'd be four pages, and you'd be mad at me. So um, to stay true to my word, I'm going to read what the Bible says instead of putting your notes. But Exodus 33, um, God has commanded Moses um, to leave Mount Sinai. Um, Moses meets with the Lord. Moses gives him the promise, or God gives Moses the promise of his continual presence as they walk and as they obey the Lord. But Moses says, I want more than just the promise. I want to see. It's, it's great that you say you're going to be, but I would just like to see you. And so beginning in verse 17 in chapter 33 of Exodus, this is Moses' conversation with Jesus. And um, scholars tell us Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So this is Moses' journal. Okay? Exodus 33, verse 17. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. So that's where Moses has asked God to make sure his presence is always with him. So God says, you got it, dude. Because I like you, that's exactly what he says, I have found, you have found grace in my sight because you're a cool guy and, and you have the right heart. My presence will always be with you. And Moses goes, okay, can we go a step further? Verse 18. And he simply says, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, he meaning God. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. That would kind of defeat God's purpose for using Moses. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So, so, so he's saying, look it, <clears throat> I'm right here, you hear my voice, I'm going to put you this place right next to me, and it's right next to this rock. So it shall be that while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. So there's an indent, there's like a little cave in the rock. I'm going to put you in the cave, and I'm going to cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses makes a request. God doesn't say, are you crazy? God says, okay, you can't see my face, buddy. If you see my face, I have to kill you. That's basically what God says. And I can't kill you because I just made a promise that my presence is always going to be with you, and you're the guy I've chosen to lead these people out of captivity. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to stand you over here right next to me. I'm going to walk by. I'm going to cover your face so you don't see me. And after I pass by, I'll remove my hand and you get to see my rear end as, as I walk away, my backside. Okay, so when God literally appears to Moses, this is what amazes me. First of all, God says, I'm going to place my hand and cover you. So... This is analytical Rick. Is it little hand covering his eyes? Is it this monstrous hand that covers his whole being and then he moves it away? Because Moses never talks about the size of God's hand. You know, I have to think, and again, this is Rick. Moses didn't shut his eyes when God's hand went over because God just said, you can't see my face. So Moses had to be there looking at that hand. Now, what was he looking at? Was the big thumb there just covering? I don't know. So that's maybe too much thought. So the Lord walks by, and the Lord declares I'm his not glory. Sure I <laughs> <laughs> that's good, because I don't either. So Moses wants his glory. God lets, his, lets us know what his glory isn't. God's glory is not his face. 
God's glory is, and this is what God says, as he's holding his hand over Moses' face, God says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So, Moses says, I want to see your glory. God basically said this. You will see my glory when you are compassionate, when you are gracious as I am gracious, when you are slow to anger, when you abound in love and faithfulness and love for thousands. And believe me, Moses is going to have to love thousands. When you forgive wickedness, rebellious, and sin. So did God answer Moses' request? Because he said he would. He said, I'm going to walk by. You can see my backside. You can't see my face. But, but you'll get to see me. But God was, was clear that his appearance was not his glory. His character, his emotions were his glory. So, you see, there are those who think God is this stoic, overbearing wizard of Oz behind the curtain pulling all the levers of life. And yet when God describes his glory, he uses words that have emotion attached to them. Compassion. You cannot be compassionate if you are emotionless. You cannot be gracious if you have no emotion. You can't be slow to anger because, you know, it's easy to be angry fast. It takes a lot of emotional control to be slow to anger, to abound in love, to be faithful, to love thousands, to forgive wickedness, to forgive rebellion, to forgive sin. Those are emotions. Those not, that's not a stoic, lever-pulling, overbearing, thumb-pressing God. That is a loving, meek creator of the universe who is, wants us to be fascinated by his character because that's what he wants us to become. He wants us to be transformed by his image is not his face, his image is his compassion, his graciousness, his being slow to anger. Which, by the way, he doesn't say don't get mad. He says slow to anger. Jesus, takes a, Jesus says, you can be angry, just don't sin. I'm pretty good at the anger part. Being angry and not sinning, still working on that. So... So that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about us beholding the glory of the Lord. It focuses on the attributes or the emotions of God. And it's not the pillars or the fire or the clouds or the smoke and all the stuff that took place on top of Mount Sinai. It wasn't the finger of God coming down and writing in stone. That was not God's glory. His glory was his character, his emotions his attributes, his compassion, graciousness, slow to anger, his love, his faithfulness, his forgiveness. That's what God says he looks like. So if we want to behold the glory of the Lord, it means that we are going to peer to gaze into the emotions of God. And as we, we, we do so, as we tear into that, it's what moves God's heart. When God sees us gazing into his emotion, his response is to minister to our emotion. When God sees us gazing into his compassion, when we're saying, saying, oh God, I want to have the compassion that you have, he says, yes. And he says, as you look into me, as you look into my word, I will pour it into you. Now, understand something. In order for God to exercise these emotions in our relationship with him, in other words, to exercise compassion, there has to be something happening that we have one of two choices, to reject or to be compassionate, whatever the person's doing. Every one of these attributes of the nature of God require one of two responses. We can be compassionate, 
or we can reject. We can be gracious or we can be rude. We can be slow to anger or we can just blow up and be a volcano. You know, we can love or we can judge. We can be faithful or we can just say, forget it, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. We can forgive or we can hold a grudge. So every one of the attributes of the character of God when we say, God, we want to become like you, when we say, God, I want to be compassionate with you, we need to understand he is going to put us in circumstances that require compassion, but he's not going to overbear us and say, here, I'm just going to pour it into you so you, you can just use it. He wants us to learn how to draw from it. And we draw from it by gazing into the mirror, by becoming who he is. And part of the mirror is this book understanding who he is, understanding what it means to be compassionate, to not be repulsed. For, for me, the, the most difficult part of compassion is not broken people. I'm, I'm, it's, it's broken people who do repulsive things. I don't handle repulsive things very well. You know? When, when my kids threw up, it's kind of my wife's job. You know, it just wasn't. I, I have a nephew. His, his, his name is Josh. And when he was a little kid, he was in our preschool. And um, one, one day, one of the, he was, he was in, the, in the baby room. We have a toddler baby room. And, and, and one, of the, one of the toddlers had messed his diaper and decided he wanted his diaper changed. And so he took the diaper off himself. And what was in the diaper fell on the floor. And my nephew, Josh, was right there. And, and the moment that fell on the floor, he vomited all over it. Fortunately, I wasn't the teacher. I didn't have to clean the mess. But that's kind of how it is with me. I mean, I just, I, I just prefer not to. I like sterile clean, you know, diffused oils, smells. Soft music in the background. But you don't learn how to be compassionate in those circumstances. So God, to become like God, is going to put us in circumstances with God. And God will remind us of his compassion, his graciousness, of his forgiveness, of his love, as it reminds us of our relationship with him. How many times have I, as a loving father, been compassionate to you? How many times have I, a loving father, been gracious to you, forgiven you, loved you, cared for you? In beholding and becoming, the first thing he does is he reflects back on us the very nature of his emotions that he's poured into our life to show us that if we can be receivers of the glory of God as we receive and beholding, then as we give out what he's given to us, we become. So beholding his glory, then acting upon his emotions that he's poured into us, we become the glory of the Lord. And in all truth, what God declared to Moses when he covered his head as, as God walked by, that very nature of his glory then is manifest in you and I in the lives of broken people here on this planet. People see the glory of the Lord in us. Um, that's kind of the measurement on how well the church does it. I'm, I'm so tired of hearing everything that's wrong with the church, how we're hypocrites, how we're unloving, how da-da-da-da-da. But part of the reason they say that about the church is because the church has been too busy gazing into its programs, gazing into its schedules, and not gazing into the face of God and becoming who he is and, and loving like he loves. So... We love because he first loved us. I mean, God does everything first. You know, that, that's what it says in, in 1 John 4. It also says in 1 John, and this is love. Here's God's definition of love. This is John writing. And if you know anything about John, if you read the book of John, read John 1, 2, and 3, all written by John. Revelation's written by John too, but that's a whole, that's a whole different thing. But those four books, John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the main theme of all four of those books is love. 
John was the guy who got loved. In fact, John is the guy who calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, little. And, and some people go, how arrogant. No, I would say this. John just spent a whole lot of his life gazing into that mirror. He spent a whole bunch of his time beholding. That's, that's why, as Jesus walked on this earth, that's why when Jesus died, the one guy at the cross is John. Why is John there and nobody else? Because John got it. He got what the love of Christ was all about. He had beheld him and beheld him and beheld him. When you look and John writes about him, John is the one who's laying his head upon Jesus' chest. It's not Peter. It's, no, it's John. And so when John is at the cross, Jesus speaks to John and to his mom. And he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Do, do you realize that, I mean, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Jesus had a brother who totally rejected everything about him until the resurrection. Then he became the head of the church in Jerusalem. But James wasn't there for Jesus to say, Jimmy, take care of mom. Because he knew Jesus was, but John not yet gazed into the glory of the Lord to become what Jesus was, but John had. And so when Jesus asked John to love his mother, he wasn't saying, be a son to her like James is. My brothers and sisters take care of my mom. He's going to say, continue to love my mom the way I've loved her so that the two of you can show my love to the world. It was much deeper than a familiar love. That's why Jesus can say, you know, unless you hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister, you can't follow me. He's not talking about hatred in the sense of disgust. He's saying, unless you love me more, so much more to the extent that, that, you, that, that they are secondary to you, you can't become who I am. Because Jesus loved his mom, but he forsook her. He wasn't home getting three squares a day for mom. You know? And so the servant God, the spirit desires to give us revelation of the dignity, beauty, and uniqueness of God's lowliness. And these are Jesus' words now. These, these are no, this isn't somebody saying this about Jesus. Jesus is saying this about himself. In Matthew 11, he says, learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, which, again, is the word for meekness. In Mark 10, he says, For even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The whole context is meekness. Serving out of emotion, which is demonstrated in power. So, beholding by faith is the path by which you and I become meek. Beholding the glory of Christ we will spiritually edify and build up the world. As we behold his glory, life, our life, power, and faith grows. And it's by this faith we go to love him. That's why I say beholding and becoming. <clears throat> when I told my wife I loved her the first time, I had no idea what it meant to love her. I knew what it meant to be emotionally drawn to her. I knew what it meant to say, you know what? I think you're the one I want to spend the rest of my life with. But in the past 45 years, I've learned what it means to love her. Beholding and becoming. Gazing into her emotions, understanding her emotions, loving her at her level, her in return loving me at my level. It's the same thing with Jesus. When we give our heart to him, we say, yes, Jesus, I love you because you love me. But that's the love that draws us into an understanding of our brokenness and our sinfulness and that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He sent his son because he loved the world. After that initial revelation of salvation, we then, like it's 45 years of falling in love with my wife, we then spend the rest of our life beholding and becoming, being transformed in the image of Christ. And each day is just a little step toward transformation until we ultimately stand before him 
when that is the completion of our transformation. So in other words, we never arrive. We are never fully transformed. We are always a transformer. We're always in process of becoming. But understand, you will become what you behold. So the more we behold Jesus, the more we become like him. The less we behold Jesus, the less we become like him. We will become whatever we behold. Whatever we decide to set our gaze upon is what we will be. I watched a guy being interviewed last night. I can't remember exactly what they're called. I think they're just called the black Israelites. The black Hebrew Israelites. And there's different sects of that. But the, but the pure one, the less violent, vile one, they actually believe they are the descendants of Abraham. And they actually believe Israel belongs to them. And that they are going to go back. Prophecy says they will go back and inherit the land. And listening to this man talk, he has spent so much time gazing into lies, gazing into things written and said by black people in order to, because they basically say they hate white people. That's part of, of, their, of their premise, because white people have robbed them of their inheritance. But because they have gazed so long into that mirror, they have become what they believe, even though they believe a lie. That's true about every cult. That's true about every person who says there is no God, who says there is no Jesus. They have become what they've chosen to gaze into, and they have been transformed into that image. We must gaze into Jesus constantly. We gaze into Jesus through Scripture, first and foremost, and then we pray scripture into life, into our life. And in that gazing and beholding, we become. And those who are meek will submit and conform their lives to the Bible. So this is what James, the brother who didn't believe in his brother, who eventually did, we have what he thinks now. He says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face where? In a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, in other words, he who gazes into the mirror of the word of God and continues to gaze into the word of God and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. So God's word is a purifier into meekness. The more we spend time in the word of God, the more meek we become, the more we are transformed into his image, and as in that transforming, we are conformed to his image. And so it is the sum of, of 2 Corinthians 3.18 that Tozer you know, described for us what we think about God is what we become, and what James says about being doers of the word, looking into it, because it's like a mirror. As we gaze into it, we will become what we behold. So the Bible shows how God shapes us into the likeness of Christ, and that's how he measures our character. And again, I go back to Romans 8, verse 29. Everybody knows Romans 8, 28 by heart. You should know what verse 29 says, too. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is what Jeremiah prophesied over Israel. I will not make mention of him, nor speak of him any, any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary holding it back, and I could not. So Jeremiah was saying, no matter how hard I tried not to prophesy, 
because if you study the life of Jeremiah, the poor guy, I mean, every time he opened his mouth and prophesied, he just got beat up. They would look for another person to prophesy the opposite of what he said, and they would believe him, and they'd throw him in a deeper dungeon, and a deeper dungeon, and a deeper... I didn't want to put everything away from him. And he said, I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to prophesy anymore because I didn't want to stay down in that stinky, smelly pit anymore. But every time I opened my mouth, it was there. It had to come out. Why was that? Because Jeremiah spent his life beholding God. And all the time he spent in the presence of the Lord, all the time he spent beholding the glory of the Lord. I mean, do you understand the first time he was brought in to offer sacrifice in the temple of the king? His dad was high priest. His dad said, son, here's your graduation day. You're going to get to offer this sacrifice. He wouldn't offer a sacrifice on behalf of the king. Instead, he prophesied against the king, saying, you're in sin. And his dad was mortified. What are you doing? Do you understand what privilege I just gave you and what you just did? And Jeremiah said then, I can't help it. can't help myself. It's what God's put on my heart to say. It's the same thing with Balaam. When Balak hired him to prophesy against Israel so Balak could defeat him. Every time Balaam opened his mouth, he prophesied for Israel, not against it. And he said, look, God doesn't lie. And I can only say what God says. That's what beholding and becoming is. We are so full of God's word that we can only say what scripture says. We can only live according to the guidelines of what the Bible says to live. We can only love like the Bible says to love. Are we going to fail? We are. And I'll be at the front of the failure line. Um, it's just our nature. But the more we behold him, the more we become like him. Psalm 119, again, the greatest psalm. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to the word. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. So God's word is a powerful, cleansing, delivering agent. We need to diligently study the Bible. We will lead. That's the lead us to meditate frequently on his glory. I'm just telling you, and, and, and I don't say this because that's what I'm supposed to say. I'm just telling from experience. I know the transformation in my life as a follower of Jesus. The day I decided to make this the first thing I eat in the morning. I confess, I get a cup of coffee first. But this is what I eat. This is what I write about in my book. It's the first thing I do every day. I get out of bed, I make the coffee, and I meditate on the Word of God. And I still fail. I still make bad choices. I still say stupid things. I still get angry when I shouldn't. You know, I lose my salvation every time I get on the 210. But, <laughs> but that's, that's part of the transformation process. There will come a day when I'll say, certainly, my friend, cut me off. Lord bless you. <laughs> I have not arrived there yet, but I am beholding and becoming. So if I had to, to define meekness, meekness is power under control. It's the complete opposite of weakness. The most powerful weapon we have is meekness. You know, the Bible says it, it's like heaping cold water upon hot coals. So God sees, sees us all as fallen image bearers. But he loves us anyway. Here's, here's what Jesus said. Love your enemies and do good. It's hard even doing good, let alone loving your enemies. And he says, if you do that, your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. And then he says this, knowing that Rick's going to read this. He says, okay, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. So, God, knowing my character, when it comes to my enemies, and when it comes to doing good, man, I ministered to for years. I was testing us all the time. There was a man I ministered to for years. I, I, you know, I just mentored, gave him stuff, and he just continually messed up, and eventually, our our relationship just just ended. He was such a mess. Out of the blue, last week. 
I get a text from him, and it's a picture. And I had given him in 19, oh, what was it, 91. I'd given him a copy of the Knowledge of the Holy, and I had written in this front cover everything he should do to live out, to walk in holiness and to see God's provision in his life, which he didn't do. That morning, for whatever reason, he sent me a picture of what I wrote to him with the title of the book next to it. And I really had to wrestle with, I do not want to respond to this. I don't like this person. You know? And now that he's trying to use my own words to make me like him, you know, is even more disgusting. But I had to respond. And I had to say, thanks. And uh, it's still true today. And I didn't say, and I love you. But that's, that's, we're always going to be confronted with the evilness of our heart. God is always going to show us, just to keep us humble, just to keep us meek, where we're falling short. And he knew that loving our enemies and doing good was going to be the tough thing for all of us. Um, you know, I, I, again, I confess praying for some of our leaders in Washington, D.C. is a very hard thing for me. I mean, praying godly prayers. I could think of prayers I would like to pray. Um, but loving them, praying God's, you know, mercy upon them and for the revelation of Jesus in their heart and life is hard sometimes. Especially when they stand and say, I pray for our president every day. You know, I just, I'm not going to say what I think. Um, but those are the things I wrestle with. That, that's that's my, my weakness that has not yet become meekness. So here's the conclusion. And if you've noticed in the Beatitudes, every Beatitude has an inheritance. If we do what the Beatitude says... There's inheritance. The inheritance for being meek is we inherit the earth. Now, when, when Jesus said this, he was quoting something Israel already knew. That wasn't a new statement for them because Zephaniah had already prophesied it. Zephaniah 2.3 says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility, and it may be that you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Um, but then it says in Psalm 37, 11, it says, the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in an abundance of peace. And Psalm 37 goes on to foretell the destruction of evildoers that you can compare to Revelation 21. But the purpose is inher of inheriting the earth is so that those who love God will live in peace. And there will come a day, new heaven and new earth, that we will live in peace, that we will rule and reign. And so part of our transformation process is preparing us to assume our position when we inherit the earth. If we're going to be rulers and we're going to be like Jesus, he wants us to study the book and to live the life before we assume the position. And so that's the process we're in right now. So the greatest expression of meekness is to live in love, period. Paul says to Corinthians, now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, the greatest of these, verse all love. First Corinthians, verses 7 and 8, he said, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. To have a servant spirit is to use my natural strengths. We lay down our personal rights and we serve people. We have no regard for receiving the award from people because we're the meek of the earth. So our goal is not to be somebody's best friend. Our goal is not to have an honors dinner in our name. Our goal is to be nameless, faceless, to be somebody telling everybody, to tell everybody about somebody who can change anybody. That's our call, that's our goal, that's what it means to become meek. So, go and be meek. Jesus, we thank you that you are meek, even unto the cross. We thank you that you and the Father were one, that you were conformed into his image, 
not because the Holy Spirit uh, impregnated Mary. You are conformed into his image because the time as the, that the Son of Man spent with God, the time you spent in quiet, the time even, even that night, uh, the first time that we have record of you praying all night, it says he went away and he prayed all night. The next morning you chose your 12 disciples. That entire night of becoming and beholding, of having your emotions and the foresight of the Father, and then to pick the guys you picked, who in all likelihood, if there was a vote taken on who should be your disciples, none of the 12 would have made the list. But you being with the Father all night, you knew who to choose. And so, God, we just thank you that we can have that relationship to be transformed into your image by beholding you and being meek and displaying your glory. And go with us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um.